Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Well, friends, it is good to be back with you this week. I um, I was away last week. I hope you noticed. It's too... <laughs> All right, I'm just kidding. Um, but I I had strep throat and I was like out cold for ten days. And um, I don't know about you, and I'm not proud of this, but uh, when I'm sick, all I do is just lay on the couch and watch TV. So. Um, I think that's from when we were kids. That was the only time we were allowed to watch. Uh, unlimited screen time was when we were too miserable to enjoy it. So um, anyway, Amazon Prime has the first four seasons of Chicago Fire, which I had never seen before. And um, now I have those four seasons and a few more that I paid for on YouTube. <laughs> I said I'm not proud of it. And um, if you've never watched this show, I'm going to give you a little synopsis. It's basically... It follows the second shift team of firefighters uh, and paramedics who work out of Firehouse 51 in Chicago. And there are always about a dozen men on this team at various ages and stages of life, and usually two to three women solidly in their early 20s, uh, depending on the season. And every single episode is some combination of like life and death intensity fire rescues and the relationship drama that plagues this extremely fit and attractive set of firefighters. (laughs) So, okay, so you can imagine, just based on that, after the first season of 24 episodes, they have basically tried out all the combinations of these people, right? And so every time for the next four seasons that any small subset of them is gathered to do anything, to eat breakfast, to just hang out at the fire hall. Anytime a subset is gathered, there is a lot of history in that group. You know what I mean? Like they can just be sitting around the table having breakfast, which it turns out they don't post pictures of on online, so that's not what that is. But they're just standing there getting some instructions for their day. And, uh, and often in the show, they are just sitting around having breakfast in the fire hall and you realize, like, that guy has been with both of those women, and that woman is really in love with the guy at the other end of the table who's engaged to somebody else, and those two guys are roommates, but one of them is dating the girl his friend has secretly loved for months, and the guy is dating the woman his boss is into, and, like, it's just, it's a lot of complexity for breakfast. And you can roll your eyes at it like I did, right? But I also noticed this really interesting thing while I was watching the show. As soon as the alarm goes off in Firehouse 51, all of that drama and tension disappears. And it's not magic. Like, it doesn't happen magically. They're quite good as actors at portraying the, like, the way that these people are deciding to set that aside Like they're making a disciplined choice every time they go on a call to set aside their own tension and do what they need to do for their team. 
And so you get these situations where you can tell that people are thinking like, you might be dating the woman I love, but you better believe that I will run into a burning building to carry you out. Right? Or we have been fighting all week over a promotion, but when my foot slips off the ladder, I know there's no way you'll ever let go of my hand. And it's really remarkable. And I know it's a TV show and all that stuff gets amped up for drama and it works. Um, but it reminds me of uh, the text that we're going to study today. So get excited. That's right. The trashy firefighter soap opera reminded me of the holy word of the Lord. Okay. And I think that the show with all its backstories and complexity and connections can help like draw out some of the tensions that get lost in the stories in scripture when we just read them through quickly, we can forget. So let's read today's scripture. I'll read it for us. Um, This is from Acts chapter 11 and starting at verse 19. If you have a Bible on your phone or there's one in the bottom of the seat in front of you, you might want to follow. We're going to jump a little bit in the stories today. But here's Acts 11, verse 19 to 26. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except the Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he rejoiced. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, And so it was that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't it nice? Like it reads like a really lovely story, simple and straightforward, nothing but good vibes. And it turns out that that is much like all the firefighters gathered around the breakfast table. It seems perfectly normal if you just started watching at that episode and you didn't know any of their backstory. So let's just unpack some of the backstory and see what's really going on. First of all, that very first sentence uh, sets the context for us. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen. We'll just stop there. Do you remember this, the persecution that took place over Stephen? It'd be a flashback in a TV show, but we'll just flip back in our Bibles to Acts 6, chapter 6, verse 5, where we meet Stephen for the first time. Remember that there's this new community of believers, and it's growing so fast that it's become too much work for the original 12 apostles to take care of everyone's needs. And so some of the widows are being overlooked when they're distributing food to everyone. Do you remember this story? And so... People get angry about it, and rightly so. That's a a pretty big justice issue. And so at the apostles' suggestion, the crowd of people chooses seven new leaders to look after that part of their communal life. 
And they choose people who are, this is from the text, who are of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And Stephen is one of those seven. And so he's a great man already. He's well thought of in the community. People, people respect him. And verse 8 says that Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So that's who Stephen is. He's kind of the hero of that story. And then these rulers, religious rulers, start arguing with him. And they can't get the best of him because of all of his wisdom, so they drag him to court. And when he still outsmarts them, in Acts chapter 7, we read, the rulers become enraged, became enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. And verse 57 says, they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, they all rushed together against him, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And that is just, it's horrific, right? That's a barbaric story. This man, this leader, this hero among them is literally ripped to shreds and beaten to death with stones in the street by the religious elite of his time. And then all those religious rulers turn on the rest of the Jesus followers, the rest of the believers. They've had a taste for blood and they start hunting and they are just busting down doors and dragging women and men into the streets to stone them and it's a bloodbath in Jerusalem. And so everybody runs from the city. And it's been a few weeks, like several weeks, since we've studied that story, right? And we've looked at a lot of other interesting and hopeful stories since then and so it's normal that we might have forgotten about this one and then this week, there's just this quick little reference in the setup sentence, and you'd miss that if you didn't pay attention. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, those who elected him and laid their hands on him to commission him into leadership, those who saw the signs and the wonders that he performed, those who listened to his teaching those who were at court with him that day, those who saw him dragged out into the street, those who heard his screams and saw the blood, those who covered their children's eyes, those who packed up quickly in the middle of the night, those who left their homes and their families behind, those who ran for their lives from Jerusalem, those ones, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and they spread the word to no one except the Jews, which means that they only told the people who they knew they could trust that they had found out about Jesus. But, which is always an important word in scripture, among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Now, the Hellenists are Greeks who were not God-fearers. They didn't follow the Jewish tradition. They didn't worship God. And that means that there were a few people in this crowd who were brave enough to start sharing the good news about Jesus with outsiders. 
the others, those who were not like them culturally. And their bravery is met with this incredible favor. The hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number became believers. So their community expands, and what we have here is already kind of amazing. This group of, I mean, they're refugees, right? A group of refugees have fled from religious persecution, and they land about 500 kilometers away in Antioch, which is a major Greek city, and they settle and they start telling people the truth about why they left, which means telling them the truth about Jesus being the Messiah. And all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles, become believers. So they're already building this incredible new thing where Jews and Gentiles are together worshiping Jesus. Well, news of that gathering kind of gets back to Jerusalem. (laughs) You know, word spreads and it gets back to Jerusalem and they send someone out to see what's going on. And the person they send is Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas? It's another flashback moment if we're watching TV. This one goes all the way back to Acts chapter 4. And it's just as the church is beginning in Jerusalem that's starting to grow and some of the believers are selling their property in response to the Holy Spirit and giving the money to the apostles to distribute to the poor and provide for everyone's needs. And in verse 36, we find out that there was a Levite, which means a man of a priestly order, um, a native of Cyprus. Um, His name was Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it's an an amazing act of generosity and responsiveness to the Spirit. And remember that Barnabas in that story is held up uh, as an alternative to Ananias and Sapphira who um, they sell their field, they bring some of the money, they lie about how much they're bringing and they get struck dead by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? Like they just drop dead on the spot when they lie about it. So... um, so Barnabas is held up as the counterpoint to that. And when he walks onto the scene in Antioch and meets this group, that's what they know. That's who they remember. And they respect him and they love him. But in the meantime, since they've fled, we've seen something else happen in Barnabas's life. right? So they had that experience where he sold the field and brought the money. And then they fled, and they haven't seen him since then maybe, but we have. In Acts chapter 9, we see this other episode. A man named Saul in Acts 9 is blinded and converted through vision of Jesus. And after his conversion, he makes his way to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, but they're afraid of him. They're hesitant to believe that he's really been converted. Do you remember why that was? It's like a lot of interconnected parts in Acts, isn't it? Nobody knew there was a test this week. Um, They hesitate to believe him because Saul is the man who presided over the stoning of Stephen. He watched that happen. I don't know if that's really him, but it could be at the top. Like He watched that happen, and he approved of it, and then he set off to track down the other believers and have them imprisoned or stoned as well. And so if we were watching a TV series, um, this is the guy that you steer clear of. 
right? When he walks on the scene, the creepy music comes in the background to remind you that you're supposed to be afraid of him. And then he shows up in Jerusalem claiming that he's been genuinely converted. And he's asking for forgiveness and for a second chance and the opportunity to join the same community he was hunting. Would you be willing to meet with him? It's pretty risky. Well, guess who steps into that situation? Barnabas. Right. Acts 9, uh, verse 27. The son of encouragement gets involved. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And so at Barnabas' word, the apostles welcome Saul in and he becomes one of them, which is sort of crazy. Okay, so let's flip back to Antioch for a second. So this new church is gathered together and Barnabas has been sent to see them and he's delighted by what he finds. He saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. And it's poignant, I think, to know the challenges that these folks have faced and to see this beautiful moment for them where like, Maybe it's all been worth it. Because here we are now, together. And then something happens. In Acts 11, verse 25, Barnabas left to go to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. Can you imagine what that's like? If you're in this crowd... You have done your best to survive the trauma of running from your home. You have faithfully shared the good news and built a community of believers. You've had the stamp of approval from Barnabas, who you love and respect. And then he leaves for a bit. And when he comes back, it's with Saul, the man who killed Stephen the man you were running from in the first place. The man, like, this is the man who haunts your dreams. Who you hoped you'd never see again as long as you lived. And that's the tension. We read this story and we see a picture in our mind of this friendly, light-hearted group of folks hanging out at the table together, but that's not really what's going on. If you think for a moment about the backstories, the past, this collection of complexities that is vibrating around that room, then everybody is holding their breath. And you can hear a pin drop and nobody moves. Because how could Saul and Barnabas be together? How can Saul be here with us? How can we possibly let that happen? What is going on? And I, like, I don't, you can feel the grief pulsating 
and the anger simmering, right, and the panic rising up in people. And I expect something, don't you? Like, I expect something dramatic to happen when I think about all of that going on. I expect the people who came from Jerusalem to raise holy hell about this. They should be so mad. I expect Barnabas to launch into defending Saul or Saul to be on the floor begging for forgiveness. And I keep thinking someone is going to hit somebody else. But the author doesn't say anything like that. He just says, so it was that for an entire year, they, Barnabas and Saul, met with the church and taught a great many people. I called this sermon the sweet agony of transformation because of everything that gets left unspoken between these two sentences. He brought Saul to Antioch. So it was. Can you imagine what has to happen in between there? Can you imagine the pain and the grief that people have to deal with? The gut-wrenching work of listening to one another's stories and trying to believe them? Of repentance and forgiveness? The unspeakable pain of inviting Saul to eat in your home for the first time? Or if you're Saul... The courage it takes to accept that invitation? Or, if you're Barnabas, of knowing that your choice to bring him is causing all this pain. And here's why I think that matters. Because after a year of living in that tension in the middle, these people were family. I guarantee that. In fact, the text tells us that Antioch was the first place that the disciples were called Christians. And so if you if you follow Jesus, you got to know that label that we use for ourselves, the one that defines us, comes from this gathering. This church is where that came from. And last week, last week, Tom had us. looking in the letter to the Ephesians to understand this bigger cosmic picture of what the gospel of Jesus means. I'm going to read some of that for us again this morning. In light of the church in Antioch, I think it's, it's so helpful again. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he's made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us. He abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, putting to death the hostility through it. And remember, the person who's writing this just a few years after this gathering in Antioch is Saul. 
He's the one writing it. So it's not just a collection of nice words or spiritual ideas, right? This is, this is the truth that Saul has lived out in his very being. He continues, So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. What God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is doing in the world is a deep and profound work of reconciliation and transformation. He's making all things one. He's breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. And that sounds good, and it is good, but oh, the work of getting there is agony. Don't ever be mistaken about the vision that God has for his kingdom. Don't ever sell short the Holy Spirit's power and intention. He intends to reconcile you to your enemies as you both get to know him. Don't ever think, God wouldn't ask me to really love that person. That would be too much for me. And I know that God just would never ask me to do it. Oh, no. He asked the Christians in Antioch to let their assassin move in and be their pastor. For real. That's agony. But after a year, he was their pastor and their brother. And that work that seemed impossible the Spirit accomplished in a year together, learning and serving God. And for the rest of eternity, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen will be bound to Saul through the sweetness and agony of allowing the Holy Spirit to build them up together into a dwelling place for God. Not every Christian gets to experience the sweet agony of transformation like this. Because lots of us, this is too bad, but lots of us kind of step back from it when it gets a little bit too painful. And I want to tell you that I hope you get to live this way. It hurts, but it also brings more life than we could ever imagine. So I'm going to switch Gears, it's a little bit abrupt, uh, and talk about three of the concrete ways that I think uh, we, can, we can learn things from this story. Three things we can learn. One is, um, it is important to advocate for and to disciple new believers. Barnabas is remarkable in that he goes out of his way, so far above and beyond, to include Saul in what he's doing in Antioch. It's the second time that Barnabas has leveraged his own good standing in the community to create space for Saul. 
He didn't have to do that. And he doesn't, he doesn't just pat Saul on the back and walk away. right? He goes and gets him, brings him to Antioch, and he spends a whole year with him, coaching and teaching and praying and developing him. And then Saul goes on to have an enormous impact on the church through centuries that would not have been possible without Barnabas' commitment. So when you have the opportunity to do it, I want to encourage you to advocate for and make space for someone new and then stick with them and help them grow. The second thing we can learn is to let God create family out of enemies. It's hard to do this, but cultivate openness to people you disagree with, people who have hurt you and people that you have hurt. And as the Spirit leads you, be confident that reconciliation is possible. This is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus. And finally, when something happens and you find yourself driven out of your Jerusalem, whatever that might be, a a new job that you have to move for, an illness that changes what you can do, whatever it is, don't give up. Believe that God can use your scattering into a new place as the seed of a brand new expression of the gospel. Wherever you land and for whatever reason, be bold enough to share the good news and see what God wants to grow. Remember Chicago Fire? I hope you all go home and watch it this afternoon. Um, remember the idea of all of them gathered around that breakfast table and it seems so peaceful and innocuous. And then you remember all the history, all the background, and how fraught with tension that table really must be. Then truly, every episode, they come through something incredible together and you realize that the purpose they hold in common, which of course for them is rescuing people from burning buildings, creates such a strong bond that, they tr- that it transcends all the tension and it makes these women and men, regardless of their history, into sisters and brothers. And that is exactly what happens in Antioch. The shared mission to witness to Jesus Christ and his resurrection creates such a strong bond between them that it transcends their agonizing history together and it makes them brothers and sisters. And that that is what has happened throughout history. It's what continues to happen today anywhere that men and women come together under Christ to fulfill his promise of witness. And I pray that it might be so among us. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. 
You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.